welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. If they are real, why hasn't one ever crashed? I've heard that. A logical question built on the assumption that they haven't. A question built on the presumption that they aren't real because they haven't crashed. Because if they did, we would have one, right? And we'd all know all about it, of course. We'd have bodies and unearthly materials and first-hand witness testimony from folks with a lot to lose, laying their livelihoods and reputations on the line to tell their story of having been there, seeing it with their own eyes. My curiosity, naturally, is piqued. <laughs> so, buckle up. We are going to take a look at some cases of UFO crashes, Paranorm Girl style, for but a few hours. The reality that UFOs, suspected by many at the time to be the cause of the lights zipping around in the sky in the weeks leading up to July 8, 1947, were in fact real, was unleashed upon the country in a press release distributed by Public Information Officer First Lieutenant Walter Hout. The many rumors regarding the flying disks became a reality yesterday when the Intelligence Office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force Roswell Army Airfield was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disk through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. Such a short press release that said so much. Three hours after this release went out, it was replaced by another. It seems the disk was actually nothing more than the radar reflector of a weather balloon that somehow had been misidentified by people who really should have known exactly what they were looking at, mistaking it for a, you know, alien spacecraft. Pieces of this harmless and hardly worth paying attention to weather balloon, were flown from Roswell to the U.S. 8th Air Force headquarters at Fort Worth, Texas, in a B-29 superfortress operated by the 509th Bomb Group, and also used to drop atom bombs on people. This is certainly a strange way to transport such nothing burgerness, yeah? Subsequently, a whole dog and pony show took place in the office of Brigadier General Roger Ramey for the press to take pictures from a distance of the small amount of materials lying on his office floor before being ushered out, followed by the closing of the office, followed by the reopening of the office, and now an invitation to come a bit closer, go ahead, take some pictures, hey, handle the materials yourself. You see? Nothing but tinfoil and sticks. And meanwhile to this... More of the wreckage was flown out to be looked over at the USAAF scientific labs located at Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. All of this for the broken remains 
of a weather balloon. As they say, something ain't adding up here. Strange lights and sightings of the unidentifiable had taken a fresh breath of life in 1947. There seems to have been a bit of a breather since the days uh, that Foo Fighters were playing tag with some of our pilots during the war. But in the spring of 1947, quiet but numerous reports began to surface once again of sightings of objects in the sky. Fast forward to June 24th of that same year when pilot and businessman Kenneth Arnold spotted nine gleaming round objects flying in formation through a series of mountain peaks of the Cascades near Mount Rainier. Well, this broke the floodgates wide open. Hundreds of reports started flooding in from across the country. The newspapers were abuzz with talk of flying saucers. Such reports, as a June 26 sighting by a Dr. Leon Odinger and three others of a large silver ball-shaped object traveling at high speed near the edge of the Grand Canyon. Or a June 27th report of a white disc glowing like an electric light bulb passing over Pope, New Mexico, minutes later being spotted southwest traveling over the White Sands Missile Range by Captain E.B. Detchmendy, followed minutes later by a sighting of it southwest of that by a Mrs. David Applezoller traveling over San Miguel, New Mexico, before it disappeared heading southwest of her. Or a July 1st report by a member of the Albuquerque Chamber of Commerce of a bluish disc zigzagging across the northwestern sky over Albuquerque. But no sane person was buying this craziness, though. They, uh, there, there was an explanation for it all. Optical illusions and birds, balloons, other planes, your imagination. It could only be every other thing under the sun but what was being described. Because if UFOs were real, you'd think... One would have crashed by now, right? Let's do a quick word from our sponsor, and then we are getting into it, you guys. Support for the Paranormal Girl podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. The leaders in below-the-waist grooming are traveling north of your man's South Pole. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 and their new beard line confirms they have all the best tools for his hygiene toolbox. Time for you to upgrade his game by going to manscaped.com and using the code PNG. For 20% off plus free shipping. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 is bomb, dudes. I was just watching Lee using it just this morning. You know how long it took him? Like less than 10 seconds. Yeah. Like, that's it. Done. Yeah. Like, like, like 4.32 seconds per nose hole. If I had to guesstimate. <laughs> It's quick. It's it's efficient. It is it, it saves mad time, bro. It also has up to a 45-minute runtime. So we rarely uh, have to plug it in. Rarely have to put it on the charger. Another time saver. Now that you're not spending all day long buzzing your nose hairs and or or now that you've regained the hours lost every single day plugging things in, you got some free time on your hands. What, oh what, will you do with your one wild and precious life? Might I recommend exfoliation. Went and got a second body buffer, scrubber, so that Lee and I could both have one. Haven't spent much time 
talking about this magical little scrubber. Uh, I use this thing every day. It is silicone. It's actually interesting. It is 100% antibacterial food grade silicone. I probably said it before. I will say it again. Don't eat it. Don't do that. It might make you full, but then you'll have to go buy another one. So nobody wants that. Uh, my favorite thing about it is the little no-slip handle on the back because your girl be dropping everything in the shower. Um, another favorite thing about it is I like how easy it is to get a big lather with less product. Using less product means that I'm not running to the store constantly to buy more. Yet another time saver. Oh my God, Manscaped. How do you do it? I don't know. So reclaim your time, dudes. Feel cleaner and more confident and get 20% off plus free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with the free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code PNG. Trust Manscaped for the only right tools for the job. All right, Roswell. For about two to three weeks leading up to the incident, people working on the base and Roswell residents started reporting seeing objects in the sky. Earl Fulford, who was a staff sergeant at Roswell Army Airfield in 1947, described seeing the objects himself in the week leading up to the crash. He described them as circular, metallic, and hovering motionless above one of the hangars before suddenly disappearing. Fulford ended up being a member of a group sent out to the debris field north of Roswell following the crash. When he was out to collect what he could of the debris, he says the pieces were of a very unusual shape, feel, and appearance. He described some of the pieces he picked up looking just like aluminum foil. However, after wadding it up to put in his sack, he said it opened back up again to its original form. After all was cleaned up, all of the debris was handed over to military police, and he never heard about or saw it again. He and the others were informed. If they ever told anyone about what they had seen, deep doo-doo, dudes. On July 2nd, 1947, Dan Wilmot and his wife were sitting on the front porch of their Roswell home, enjoying the cool evening breeze prior to the heavy thunderstorm expected to roll in that night when all of a sudden a big glowing object zoomed out of the sky from the southeast. It was going northwest toward Corona, New Mexico, at a high rate of speed. Wilmot and Mrs. Wilmot ran off their porch into the yard to watch this oval-shaped object, something they described looking like two inverted saucers facing mouth-to-mouth -mouth and glowing as if lit from within, passed over their house and out of sight to the northwest in under a minute. Though Wilmot would tell the press that he hadn't heard a sound, his wife said she heard a swishing as it passed overhead. July 3rd, 250 miles from Roswell, Barney Barnett, a civil engineer working for the federal government in soil conservation, came across a downed metallic disc-shaped object near Magdalena, New Mexico. He also allegedly saw multiple small, deceased, odd-looking bodies with very large heads, small but widely spaced eyes, dressed in jumpsuits, some lying outside of the object, and some, he assumed, still inside of it. And for anyone who doesn't know, this is the San Agustin crash, which took place in and around the same date as the Roswell crash is thought to have occurred. A second crash site in close proximity to the Roswell crash site. 
Are they connected? Some theorize yes. Barney was soon joined by a few individuals who told him they were an archaeological research team from the University of Pennsylvania working nearby, and they were coming back from their dig, saw the object going down, and had come to investigate, initially thinking, same as Barney, that what they had seen was a plane go down. The military arrived soon after to take control of the site, followed by more to cordon off the area. Barney and the team then were told to leave and not say a word to anyone about what they had seen. Barney would wait three years following this event to relay the story to his close friends L.W. and Jean Maltese, who years later, following Barney's passing, would then relay it to investigators. According to the Maltese's recollection, Barney had told them the military emphasized that it was his patriotic duty to remain silent. July 6th, rancher Mac Brazel reports to the local sheriff that on the morning of July 3rd, following the violent thunderstorms, he too had come across something unusual on his land, located 70 miles north of Roswell. A field full of bits and pieces of shiny material unlike anything the veteran rancher had ever seen. The sheriff reaches out to Major Jesse Marcel, who subsequently goes out to the ranch to investigate. He fits as much of the debris as he can into his truck to take back to the base. And Marcel would later tell Stanton Friedman that what he retrieved that day and what he handled was no weather balloon. As Brazel would tell the local radio announcer of KGFL, Frank Joyce, who interviewed him over the phone, just a chance interview, um, about the strange wreckage. Maybe it's from one of them flying saucer things people have been talking about. He was also told by Brazil about finding little people someplace else not too far from the main site. Joyce wouldn't get too far with the story, though. Somehow, his boss and owner of KGFL, Walter Whitmore, who had been planning to air Brazel's story as a scoop, was led to believe, somehow, that he might suddenly lose his broadcasting license if he didn't cooperate. He backed off the story, and the Air Force took up with, the, with Brazel. And strangely enough, Brazel's story, his public story anyway, would take a more weather balloon-friendly tune. But apparently, before that happened, on July 7th, Following a chance meeting with Mac Brazel in a local cafe, a lot of chance meetings with Brazel, and a relaying of his story of what he had found. A reporter for local radio station KSWS, Johnny McBoyle, would make it out to the crash site himself, only to quickly be taken into custody by the military that was present and taken back to base. And I'm unsure of the timeline of this. I'm not sure uh, when he got there or how long they held him for. But at 4 p.m., Lydia Sleppy, who operated the teletype at KSWS's sister station out of Albuquerque, received a phone call from a very excited Johnny McBoyle. According to the 1980 book, The Roswell Incident, he excitedly told her, to get ready for a scoop, and they needed to get it teletyped right away, in transit, right away. A flying saucer had crashed near Roswell. He'd been there. He'd seen it. It looked like a big, crumpled dishpan. And get this, they're saying something about little men on board. 
And Lydia, whether she was buying it or not at this point, she starts to type in the message, you know, and everything that Johnny is relaying to her. After only a couple of sentences, though, she reports the machine suddenly stopped itself. And this was not unusual, but she said that she'd never been cut off in the middle of a transmission before. On her end of the phone, she recalled that Johnny seemed to be under pressure to get the message across and was also speaking and being spoken to on the other end. Suddenly, the teletype began again, this time on its own. An unidentified sender addressed the Albuquerque station, her, directly. Do not transmit. Repeat, do not transmit this message. Stop communication immediately. And it wouldn't be until 1972 that Lydia Sleppy would speak publicly about her experience that day. Johnny McBoyle himself may have been discouraged by someone to go no further with the reporting of this story. He would ultimately leave Roswell never to return and live out the rest of his days on a remote farm in Idaho. And when reporters would show up decades later because they want to talk to him, he just outright denied that anything had taken place. Even his family said that they were unable to ever get their father to speak about what happened at Roswell. July 8th is when the press release and the panicked re-release was issued. And the rest is history at least until 30 years later, when that darn Stanton Friedman would get his hands on it and put some real chinks in the armor of secrecy and cover-up. I went a little conspiracy there. I know. <laughs> but you got to admit, like, come on. Oh, something happened, man. This debris was not just some balloon. And, and not just Brazil, but multiple folks who personally handled the debris, have spoken to that publicly. They didn't know what it was, but it wasn't that. Um, the military would have all kinds of explanations as to what took place. Originally, yes, weather balloon. Uh, a really fun one comes from the 1950s of a test involving anthropomorphic dummies dropped from high altitudes to test the effects of ejection seats to explain away the so-called bodies encountered. This, of course, is contradicted um, by the flying saucer <laughs> and the debris that witnesses claim to have seen around the bodies. Another explanation the military suggested was that it could have been related to a secret high-altitude weather research program designed to collect data on atmospheric conditions, which is similar to their first gut reaction explanation um, and does not at all explain the low-altitude spherical and metallic objects spotted for weeks prior to the crashes. And in 94, ooh, they released to the public that what actually had happened was part of a top-secret program called Project Mogul, where they were conducting classified exercises with spy balloons that were to be used to keep an eye on Soviet missile and bomb tests. Okay, so there's a problem with this. The problem with this is that there were people still alive up until recently who were directly involved with this debris. And that posed a problem 
uh, for this final official explanation because investigators of this case rushed to meet and speak with these witnesses before they passed away and their experiences were lost forever. Um, interviews were conducted with these firsthand witnesses and uh, based on their description, they were given a selection of various tin foils and sheet metals and plastics that the investigators felt best fit what had been described to them. And the closest material that they selected that they felt was closest to what they had handled personally back in 47 was the metallic acetate. There was nothing else that, it, that was even close. And, and, and the acetate was not exact. It was but very close in look, weight, and feel. But that doesn't even matter because acetate was not used in Project Mogul's balloons in 47, aside from the tape. Theories of a more extraterrestrial nature, which take the two crash sites both into consideration, include these multiple sites being the result of one singular craft coming down near Roswell initially, bouncing and scattering debris every which way, but moving at such a high speed that it ricocheted enough to ultimately crash on the plains of San Augustine. Another is that there were two craft involved that crashed into one another, the first literally exploding into smithereens and, you know, creating those debris fields, and the second damaged beyond repair, uh, beyond recovery, only to go down and crash a short while later at the second site. Ugh, I, I get why people are so obsessed with this case. I get it. Uh, but God, that's a lot to digest. So much I didn't know about this case, this story. Um, I, I had no idea there was a second crash site. I'd never heard that before. Um, I recommend reading um, any of the sources that I pulled from for today's episode for more juicy details. And that was primarily Crash at Corona, the Roswell Incident, and UFOs and Aliens. Is there anybody out there? Okay, let's move on to our second case. Another alleged crash of a UFO that is also very curious. This one takes place in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. On December 9, 1965, around 4.30 p.m., residents of Kecksburg, just 45 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, watched a bright, glowing object resembling a fireball moving over them toward the earth. Some residents watched in amazement as this strange light made maneuvers and U-turns as it continued its descent. As it approached a wooded area, it slowed down. After the object left watcher's view, some reported seeing a bluish smoke rising up from the trees, but quickly dissipating. Curious residents began making their way to the Kecksburg woods. One witness, Bill Bullabush, drove to the woods and began walking toward the smoke. He says he could smell a sulfur-like scent and hear a sizzling sound as he closed in. And Bill is one of the individuals, the few individuals, who say that they went down to the woods that evening and actually saw for themselves um, this object before the military arrived on scene. According to the reports, these individuals came upon a metallic acorn-shaped object the size of a VW partially embedded into the ground. It was a bronze-gold color 
and appeared to be one solid piece of metal with no visible seams, hardware, or rivets. Upon the back of the object, some witnesses described seeing unusual markings that resembled hieroglyphics. And calls about this object had already been pouring into the local stations, completely filling up their lines uh, with stories of downed airplanes and, and meteorites and, of course, a crashed UFO. The news director of WHJB Radio at the time, John Murphy, is believed to have been the first reporter on the scene and, according to his wife, who was in radio contact with him that night, said that he actually saw the object himself. If you were one of the early few, you were lucky and saw a once-in-a-lifetime sight. It would only be a couple of hours before the Army and Air Force caught wind of a downed unidentifiable and arrived on scene. Before anyone else could have a chance to see it, everyone was ushered out a far enough distance away, followed by the entire area being cordoned off. Curious onlookers watched and waited throughout the evening, some more impatient than others, tried to sneak beyond the border and make their way down into the woods, only to be turned back by the military. According to just a few of those reports, that request was made by gunpoint. The Project Blue Book report stated that there was a search conducted that night lasting until 2 a.m., but that nothing was found. Um, compare this with multiple witnesses who said that they literally watched the military haul a tarp-covered, acorn-shaped object out of the area on the back of a flatbed truck at the end of the night. Um, it's, it's interesting that Project Blue Book even mentions this case at all, uh, while also including the statement, a three-man team has been dispatched to ACME to investigate and pick up an object that started a fire. The report also indicates lots of interest from various agencies about the object, and yet says there was just nothing to find. Interesting indeed. Investigator Stan Gordon was approached by numerous informants, some of which included people who had military or government affiliation with the case, as well as anonymous tips that turned out to be accurate. One Air Force officer involved contacted Stan to talk about how he had been part of the unit tasked with guarding the object after it arrived from Kecksburg at Lockbourne Air Force Base in Ohio early the following morning of the site. Project Blue Book be like, <laughs> what? what object? What you talking about? To this day, speculations on what this thing was include it was a meteorite, or it was a faulty Soviet satellite, or at least bits and pieces of a faulty Soviet satellite. It was actually confirmed that the Soviet Venus probe Cosmos 96 did re-enter the atmosphere on that day, coincidentally enough. Um, the Soviets admitted to that, but this was not our little acorn, as K-96 landed in Canada some 12 hours before. NASA released a statement on the 40th anniversary of the incident, reporting that metallic fragments collected from the crash site had been examined by experts who all determined that they were from a Russian satellite that had re-entered and then broke up, disintegrated. So 
there were two faulty Soviet satellites that just decided to kick the bucket on the same exact day, and uh, but uh, the, the Soviets were only willing to admit to one of them? I, I don't know. I'm confused. Um, oh, um, NASA conveniently lost all records having to do with those experts' claims and examinations resulting in those conclusions back in the 80s. They just disappeared, much like a faulty Soviet satellite. Um, as for a meteorite, a celestial object crashing into the woods, causing concern for a fire, why would a meteorite cause the military to uh, act the way that they did? If, if it really was just a fire hazard, that's the, the local fire department's job, yeah? So what was so important about whatever it was that fell in Kecksburg that caused an out-and-out military reaction? I don't know. It all just seems so extreme for some rogue skyrock. <laughs> um, the final case that we are covering today is a suggestion. It comes to us from Mike at Extreme Paranormal Podcast. And um, he's, he's a longtime listener and a fellow podcaster and, and a buddy of mine. And today's episode is actually dedicated to him. Uh, he's had a year. So uh, I will put his show information down in the show notes. And I think he would just be so beside himself if he were to get some new ears on some of his recent episodes and maybe some ratings on the old Spotify. So let's go show him some love. Um, this one's for you, Mike. All right. Our final case for today allegedly took place six years before the Roswell incident in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, in late April of 1941. This is directly quoted from a very thorough interview that was conducted with the granddaughter of Reverend William Huffman. Her name is Charlotte Mann. And this was the most recent and up-to-date interview and information that I could find. I will link it below for you to take a look. Well, they, referring to her grandparents, were sitting around visiting, and it was 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening. The phone rang, and Grandfather went to the telephone. He talked for a little bit and hung up. What was said at that time was that someone had called the police department, or we assumed it was the police department, and they had reported what they saw was a plane crash, that the person whose property it was on had seen it. It had landed in a field, and there was some fire associated. So they asked if Grandfather would be willing to go out with them to the scene in case there were some people who might need prayer or assistance because they weren't quite sure what they were headed to. So he agreed to do that, and a car was sent for him. They picked him up. I don't know how long he was gone. My grandmother didn't ever tell me that, but for a while. It was later because they stayed up late to wait. When he came back, he was very shaken, and it took a lot to shake my grandfather. She said that he sat down and told her, I'm going to tell you what has happened. You can never repeat it, and I will never speak of it again. He said that when he got out there, that it wasn't a crashed plane at all. There were some civilians, we assume probably people who lived near the farm where it crashed, near the people who would place the call, neighbors. I believe there was a newspaper man. I believe there might have been some fire people at the time, but some civilians. 
Grandfather described what he saw was a saucer shape that had broken in half, and you could walk up to see inside. He saw a panel of things he didn't know, gauges, different things, and small little seats that looked children-sized. The thing that seemed to impress him the most and intrigued him the most was there was a band around it of a type of metal that he was not familiar with. It looked as if it had hieroglyphics, like Egyptian-type writing that he assumed was writing. There were three beings thrown. They were on the outside and assumed thrown out by the crash. One was still breathing, not dead. Grandfather knelt down next to him, and he expired, but he prayed over each and every one of them. One photo was taken that night of two civilians holding one of the being's bodies from under the arms. Charlotte claims to have seen it as a child. She describes the being photographed as thus. Child-sized, probably four feet tall. It was difficult to tell if it had on a metallic suit or if it was its skin. It kind of looked like crinkled aluminum foil, but soft. He looked as if he had no bone structure, no visible male or female features, very large oval eyes, similar to the depiction on Whitley Strieber's book cover on communion, but not exactly. Larger head, dark oval eyes. It didn't really have a nose, but looked like someone had taken a pencil and marked two dots. I don't recall the mouth. It was more as if you took a knife and slit across. No lips, nothing like that. Small framed body. The arms were much longer than our arms. The hands weren't formed like our hands, less fingers, and much longer. And Charlotte goes on to say that while folks continued to gather around and the picture was being taken and her grandfather was administering prayers, all of a sudden military just showed up, surrounded, and overran the place. Grandfather was taken aside, as were several of them, and they were told that they had not seen what had taken place, that it was high security as far as the government was concerned, national security. So they weren't to speak of it. In that day and time, if you told my grandfather, this is about our country, and this is important, and it will be detrimental, he truly never did speak of it again, to our knowledge. And this story uh, flew under the radar for a very long time. It wouldn't be until the 80s and 90s when Reverend Huffman's granddaughter, Charlotte, would come forward with the account of what had been relayed to her about her grandfather's experience by her grandmother whilst on her deathbed. According to Charlotte, she had heard bits and pieces of this story while growing up, but while sitting with her dying grandmother, finally got the full story. Hesitatingly, as Huffman's wife did not want to betray her promise to him to never tell a soul what he had told her that night. But luckily, she did leave Charlotte with everything that, uh, that she knew. So allegedly, there were two copies made of the photo taken that night. So following the incident, uh, there was a photographer who had been there and had snapped the photo on his personal camera and then... Afterwards, he developed the picture and had a couple copies made. And then it sounds like he got scared that he had it in his possession. So he ended up uh, giving one copy of it to Reverend Huffman, basically for safekeeping, is what it sounds like. Um, another source that I found is by MUFON, and it's a bit dated, but it talks about how Charlotte's father inherited the photo from his father 
and then for some reason offered it up as proof to a photographer friend of his back in the 50s. And it was never seen again. I don't have another source verifying that information, but I just thought that was really interesting and uh, wanted to throw that in there. Charlotte certainly does not have the photo in her possession. Nobody has it. Um, and, uh, and this photo has not seen the light of day since. And nobody seems to know the whereabouts of the other photo, <laughs> the original. Uh, really, really interesting story. Very interesting cases today. I enjoyed every minute of it. If you were intrigued by today's subject, there certainly is no shortage of UFO crash tales and stories and cases to explore uh, beyond what we have covered today. If you are interested in doing so, I will leave you with a few here at the end that I thought were interesting. Um, yeah, I'll leave you with these to get you started. An early one, uh, which describes an unearthly being and a downed airship, took place in 1897 in Aurora, Texas. This one is interesting because it, it involves a write-up of the event on the following day <laughs> of this alleged event. So the next day, it was in the papers. Um, a few others to take a look at include Tunguska, Siberia, object in 1908, the Aztec crash of 1948, also took place in New Mexico, also involved non-human bodies purportedly recovered, the Shag Harbor incident that took place in Canada, 1967, the Height 611 UFO incident in 89, the oh, the Salta case, we almost did this one, the Salta case of 1995 is really interesting for a couple of different reasons. So first off, weeks before this crash, there was a near-miss incident reported from a pilot um, that had been going into land at the airport, the local airport at the time, and dang near just smacked right into an unidentifiable craft. Okay, well, then on August 17th, just weeks later, a bright metallic flat object was seen screaming out of the sky. Multiple witnesses report this thing going down, including another pilot on lunch who jumped into his plane and went to take a look. He would end up taking several trips out over the site of impact and seeing what was clearly a crash site. And then there may or may not have been some men in black suits that showed up as well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it just sounded like a really cool case. Uh, very interesting. So somebody cover that bad boy and then, and then tell me all about it. That is going to be a wrap for today. Time for a final note. One more thing on Roswell and then I will drop it. <laughs> this information comes from Thomas Carey in an essay that he wrote for the book UFOs and Aliens. And it's yet another great point as to why balloons is a garbage explanation. He mentions in his essay that prior to and during the week of Roswell's explosion in the news, 
three other balloons of an identical type crashed over the U.S. They went down in California, Ohio, and New York. All three were retrieved by civilians, and each one was quickly identified as exactly what they were. Weather balloons with tinfoil radar targets attached. All of them. Quickly. Carey says that in one case, one of the people who retrieved the balloon was even given the option to keep it if they wanted to. Like a non-UFO souvenir. And at no point did the military swarm these crash sites, cordon off the areas, load the materials into a B-29, or somehow convince these people to not talk about what they found. At no point, it seems, did the Air Force uh, seem to care all that much about it. And again, these objects were quickly identified by the laypersons who found them, people with no expertise on the matter, knew what they were. But members of the military, who arguably would have been experts and and residents of the Roswell area, who would have seen these balloons being released by the base consistently, couldn't identify what the debris was? misidentified weather balloons as aerial vehicles for weeks leading up to the crash. (sighs) Things to ponder, folks. Today I've got some shout-outs to give. Boy, do I ever. First off, I want to welcome my new listeners. I am so glad to have you guys on board. I just know as soon as I said If you like to binge listen, you are already over here pushing that subscribe button, and I thank you for it. I found my people. We're all binge listeners here. Hmm. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, which you might not, (laughs) I am referring to my recent story time over on Jim Harold's Campfire, episode 603, Hunted Podcasters. If you haven't listened yet, I think you should. I had such a great time getting to share that story with him and being on his show. Jim is uh, is just the coolest dude. He's the best. So shout out to the new listeners and shout out to Mr. Harold. Also, the final shout out goes to my buddies over at Black Metal Brunch. Right now, you can get 10% off anything in their online store uh, with my super special, super duper awesome code, PGP, blackmetalbrunch.com. Awesome stuff. Check it out. Follow the show on all socials if you have not yet at ParanormGirlPod or message me, ParanormGirlPod at gmail.com. I do respond to all emails. It might take me a day or two <laughs> to do so, especially right now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul with my attention and time these days but I read everything that you guys send to me I always appreciate it and uh, I I will get back to you eventually (laughs) join me next week for an all-new conversation with author and lead investigator and founder of Elk Valley Paranormal Sin Trader Hill we will be discussing her uncanny ability to get those elusive EVPs in the can and hopefully get to play some of those during our chat as well. I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, That is going to be it for now. Until we meet again, stay safe, 
keep the nightlight on and sleep with one eye open. <laughs>